0: It's Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, all our posted conversations will contain completed contents from our year-end interviews, edited only slightly for flow and background noise. This conversation is with our good friend, Scott Friedman. Scott covers what he considers some of the most exciting basic liver science papers of 2022. He will discuss these in greater detail and with a different spin at the 2023 NASHTAG meeting, January 5th to 7th. Surfing the Nash Tsunami will have next day coverage of the two presentation days at NASHTAG, posting the Friday session around 6 p.m. Eastern. U.S. time on Saturday, and the Saturday session around 6 p.m. Eastern U.S. time on Sunday, and here's Scott. This afternoon, we're here with one of our, actually, we're recording a lot of our favorite guests this afternoon, but this favorite guest happens to be Scott Friedman. Scott, how are you this afternoon?
1: Scott Friedman.
0: I'm great, Roger. How are you? Fine. As you get ready for the end of the year, any highlights ahead or just kind of a end of the year?
2: Well, I think there's lots to be hopeful about and lots of great science. I guess that's my strong suit. Some of these are going to translate into new approaches. So I would say there's some interesting prospects out there based on the published literature and the calendar year.
0: Jorn, how are you this
1: evening? Jorn Schattenberg. I- I'm fine. It's the start of the last two weeks in clinics. I was telling Scott up front, there's a lot of clinical stuff going on still. But anyways, looking at as a very successful year, I believe. So it's fun. And
0: as you point out correctly, it's late in Germany, even later than it is in England. Louise, how are you today? Back on this side of the uh, world.
3: Louise Campbell. I'm recovering. I'm oh, very well. It's a bit snowy here. So we're getting a preview to a white Christmas here in London, which isn't unusual, but it's not that common.
0: We don't see snow here anymore. Well, we do occasionally, but very rarely. One of the effects of global warming is we had, I guess what you all, would cause three or four degrees and rain the other day. And five years ago, I'm pretty sure that would have been snow or icing, but it isn't. So with that, why don't we just uh, kick on? I've invited Scott to join us and talk about, as he started to preface, some of the really exciting sciences come on this year. Scott, my friend, your floor, go ahead.
2: Sure, lots of exciting science. as You know, NASH and both in patients and even in basic science and translational models uh, is really front and center for obvious reasons in terms of the public health impact. And with no approved drugs, there it seems to be on the one hand, more of an urgency to come up with better pathways and better targets. On the other hand, to try to modify and improve our clinical trials and our endpoints and our non-invasive markers to make those trials more streamlined and more accessible. And there's been progress. So there are a number of articles I'm going to highlight if you'll indulge me. I will say that I'm well prepared for this podcast because I was asked to speak at the upcoming NASDAQ conference, which I know, Roger, you'll be well represented at. And in doing so, I was assigned the task of finding some good articles to review for best of basic science. So I will share some of those perspectives uh, without revealing what I think will be an entertaining framework in which I present these articles. So for those who aren't planning to attend, this may induce you. And for those who are, uh, make sure you show up in my lecture. <laughs> okay, so I would say that the First article is recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's an article that identified a genetic polymorphism in a gene I'd never heard of called CIDEB, which is a cell death activator. And this follows a similar path for studies that were done a few years earlier to identify a genetic variant in a gene I also hadn't heard of called HSD17B13, in which the presence of a non-coding variant, meaning the protein was and Express seemed to associate with protection from NASH, which suggested that and still suggests that this gene variant that is a germline or it's genetically transmitted, this gene variant, when it encodes for an inactive protein, protects patients, which of course implies that the protein itself may be activating NASH or contributing to NASH through lipotoxicity. And I think that remains a very important discovery and one that has already launched at least two or three efforts in commercial space to antagonize hsd 7 B13 to mimic the protection that is conferred naturally by patients who have the protective variant. Now along comes in the New England Journal another paper that has a very similar story meaning that a variant in this newly discovered gene CIDEB that prevents the protein from being active also protects patients with liver disease and interestingly the molecule seems to behave similar to HSD17 B13 meaning that it is involved somehow in lipid droplets so if you prevent the protein from functioning, you prevent some of the presumed injury from the accumulation of lipids and the generation of lipotoxicity. So it speaks to, number one, the power of genetics and uncovering pathways that we really never thought about or didn't even know about, on the one hand. On the other hand, it tells us this is a very complex disease with a lot of genetic variants that may variably contribute to the likelihood that a patient who's obese and has fat may develop NASH. The one other important aspect is that the loss of function variant is present in about 1 in 150 patients. Less than 1%, not wildly common, but proof of principle that genetics are really contributing. Now, the challenge in NASH more broadly is we have this huge palette of drivers. They're genetic, some are derived from the microbiome, some are attributable to diabetes and the consequences of metabolic syndrome. And how we integrate all these different drivers and establish which one or ones are most important. important, I think remains one of the uber-challenges, if you will, of sorting out the pathogenesis of NASH and prioritizing therapeutic targets. So just to summarize, and the paper was Verweij, V-E-R-W-E-I-J et al. in New England Journal of Medicine, probably about six weeks ago. So this paper identifies a new genetic variant with some protection in the case of variants that prevent the protein from being active. How we add this up and how we integrate this into our evolving picture of NASH pathogenesis remains to be established?
1: I think this is very apropos, Scott, and I think there's a paper in the Journal of Hepatology that came out two or three days ago on anti-sense SIR or SIRNA therapeutics on HSD-17 beta and actually in, in a proof of concept they showed that in patients and healthy, healthy volunteers they could knock down the mRNA and the protein and even reduce ALT in these patients. The science you're detailing here is already being taken up by companies being put into patients in early clinical trials. So this is the exciting aspect of this development from my perspective.
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful compliment to what I said, Jorn. And I would reinforce that it not only shows how quickly genetic information can translate into real therapies, it also underscores something that we had shied away from before, and that was gene therapy. So effectively, what you described to knock down HST17b13 is a form of gene therapy. We realize now that gene therapy is all around us in a very good way because the COVID-19 vaccines that were basically an mRNA-based vaccination strategy are in fact gene therapy. And there we have hundreds of millions of people who have received those vaccines already. And so that combined with some approved gene therapies for rare liver diseases like alpha-1 antitrypsin, porphyria, I think we're close to approval for gene therapies for hemophilia, and I'm probably overlooking some others as well. This all speaks to a new era of treatments, both for liver disease, which is particularly appealing because liver is a perfect target for gene therapy, but also gene therapy of bone marrow to correct genetic diseases. So whole new era. Liver is out front in many ways, again, because most gene therapies, if they're effectively manufactured without a targeting component, they go to the liver automatically. So it seems to be the lowest hanging fruit for testing gene therapy. So lots of excitement and your your comment is very apropos. So maybe the next paper or papers I'll highlight are two papers that really are each tour de force. I don't know if that means they're tours de force or tour de forces or something else, but nonetheless, they're both from the laboratory of Robert Schwabe, who's a very accomplished scientist at Columbia here in New York, and I've admired his work for many years, there's always been this very poorly understood relationship between scarring and cancer. And uh, of course, in liver, that's probably the prime example because most patients only develop cancer once they have very advanced scarring. But it's also true in other tumors, or I should say in mother organs, where fibrosis is associated with cancer development. The other prominent one is pancreas, but also lung and other tissues as well well. And so everybody knows now that the, where the scarring comes from in the liver, it comes from activated stellate cells which turn into myofibroblasts. But there has been articles that some of which suggest that these activated stellate cells are promoting the cancer. Others have suggested they're preventing the cancer. And you can find data that support each one of those arguments over the course of the last few years in the published literature. And what Robert Schwabe has done is published two papers that use a similar approach, one of which was addressing the role of associated Associated fibroblasts, i.e., myofibroblasts in cholangiocarcinoma and the other in hepatocellular carcinoma. And to cut a long story, and I mean long, talking about dozens of figures and extraordinary detail in many models, but the bottom line is in many ways, your studies resolve this conundrum because they show that there's actually different subpopulations of stellate cells that go into myofibroblasts. Some are tumor promoting, some are tumor protecting. And so I should emphasize that one of the reasons this study became possible. Is in the last year or two is because of the advent of methods to do either whole genome or transcriptomic sequencing of all the expressed genes in individual cells. So it's a level of what we would call granularity of data that was not possible five years ago. Now that we can take individual cells and sequence the transcriptome or the genes that are being expressed, we can now see how many cells have a gene pattern that is pro-cancer, how many have a gene pattern that is anti-cancer. Of course, this only sets the stage for answering the more, I would say, translational question is, what do we do with this information? Can we convert the bad stellate cells into the tumor-protective stellate cells? What drives the emergence of each of these different subtypes? How do we approach this therapeutically to exploit this important information about the so-called heterogeneity of fibrogenic cells so we can really have an impact on the emergence of cancer? So very important studies. I mean, you could talk about those two papers for hours based on the depth of data, but that's the high-level picture that really resolves a conundrum that is now only made possible through the available of single-cell sequencing
0: technologies. So, Scott, you kind of raised an interesting question in there, which I want to circle back to a little bit, knowing that this is basic science, not commerce at that level. But how do you envision all this translating, if you had a guess?
2: My guess is that we will find the signals that switch bad cells into good cells and we'll try to convert more of them. And that paradigm is going to turn out to be true for macrophages as well. You know, and I, for one, have always pursued science with a rather simplistic reductionist approach, and I finally yielded to the idea that that the devil really is in the details. For example, macrophages, there are going to be pro-resolving macrophages and pro-fibrotic macrophages. And evidence suggests they switch. So if we can find a transcription factor, for example, that drives that switching to a protective role, uh, we could enhance the expression of that transcription factor perhaps using gene therapy. Or if there's a transcription factor or other signal in the cell that turns the cell into a pro-fibrotic one, we can turn that one off with siRNA. So I think that's probably going to be the direction we're going I think these are like any great paper raising many questions and that some of them are provocative in terms of whether we can realistically expect to change the behavior of cells in the setting of an injured liver for example you know we need to be optimistic because we're certainly in a stage of science that I didn't envision early on in my career so I think the best is in some ways yet to come that's my simplistic answer is if we can find the regulatory genes and manipulate their expression to change the nature of the cell that's something that would have great appeal
1: the thought that- comes to my mind, and Robert's paper really highlights that this is an imbalance of hepatic stellate cells at a certain time point, is that this could be different at different disease stages. So if a patient is in a tumor-promoting, tumor growth, metastatic disease stage, it could even be more complex by having to look at the time he is at in his disease journey. And potentially, genes are being switched on and off at different stages, obviously. So it could be even more complex than just trying to restore the balance through a gene in all, let's say, age, patients.
2: That is very well said, Jorn. And in fact, it tees up perfectly my next paper. <laughs> but before I do that, Roger, did you have any other comments or Louise, you want to make?
3: Well, I was just going to comment because what Scott is describing is very much related to an article I think you wrote in 2015 about embrace the change and how we looked at the last 35 years of development in hepatology and epigenetics it was the first area that you felt was going to be the growth period and it sounds like it is and it sounds like it's developing and, and is it we're finding out all of these nice protective nature of the liver and its whole capacity to regenerate and why it does so so well. The more we know about that the better and it's how i translate that information to patients in a more simplistic way i suppose (laughs) i'm looking to gauge
2: well i share your optimism and like me i'm sure urine shares it as well because we've lived through the revolution in hepatitis c treatment and i remember very very well telling my patients as long as they weren't too advanced if they were too advanced they needed a transplant but we could see above the horizon that there was curative therapies on the way and i vividly remember telling them that There was great progress on the horizon. We just needed to keep them out of harm's way until those became available, and the rest is history. We have curative therapies for hep C in 8 to 12 weeks, 95-plus percent cure. We don't dwell much on our successes because we have more challenges ahead, but that is probably going to be the greatest success story we've experienced in hepatology for some time. In terms of its impact on public health, it's completely changed the nature of end-stage liver disease. We're seeing fewer and fewer, and that's going to be even a greater change over the next few years and less liver cancer. Of course, unfortunately, NASH seems to be replacing that at a relatively steady clip so that we don't have time to indulge in self-congratulation around the success of hep C because we have a larger population than hep C now with NASH who have many of the same risks of cirrhosis and
0: liver failure. Th- that comment heads directly to my next question. Louise, go ahead.
3: No, no I was just going to say, if we can do what Scott's describing in some of those papers in this protective mechanisms for the liver, then can endocrinology and cardiology embrace the change that we can induce in liver to help their diseases that are connected.
2: That's right. Well, there's two ways to think about that, Louise. One is, are the same signals that are driving disease in liver relevant to the diseases in heart and pancreas and kidneys that are also affected by metabolic syndrome? There's a more, I would say, blocking on the word, but there's a more holistic view, if you will, which is that if you correct the liver alone, that it's such an important organ that many of the benefits of treating the liver will be conferred or extended to the kidney and to the heart and to the pancreas just by fixing the liver. And that's what many who are developing metabolic therapies for liver disease are arguing is there's going to be a carry-on benefit just from making the liver healthier because it has such a broad impact on other tissues. The word I was trying to think of was parsimonious. It's a more parsimonious explanation.
0: That was kind of my follow-on thought, which is it is scientifically parsimoniously and commercially challenging. The last time Nashtag had a panel on commerce was 20 right before the pandemic. And I was on that panel and was asked a question about, why weren't payers going to be willing to pay for liver what liver was worth? To which my answer basically was because cholesterol is cheap, diabetes is relatively cheap, and liver might be really expensive. One of my fellow panelists wound up pounding the table, and I had to explain I wasn't expressing my view, at which point the panelists acknowledged it. No, I wasn't expressing my view. And the table pounding was because that panelist was getting the same response from U.S. commercial. So I can foresee that we're going to have to figure out how to balance, which is kind of what's happened with hep C. When hep C launched initial launch price, economically, It made sense in the long term for society, but every payer would have gone broke, giving it to everybody who had to have it at the initial price. Now we're at a quarter of the price in the U.S. and less than that in other parts of the world, and it becomes economically a lot more feasible. As you point out, Scott, that's a much smaller population than Nash. So I think there are going to be interesting questions as we do all this around that parsimony.
2: Well, so there are a number of uh, takeaways from the Hep C story, one of which I mentioned. But the other is that Michael Houghton and his team at Chiron discovered the virus in 1989, a tour de force that ultimately led to the. Nobel Prize. And here was a single virus, not a systemic disease like metabolic syndrome. And still, it really took 25 years to get to the point where we had high levels of cure with well targeted medications. And that's one target, a virus. So, we, on the one hand, are optimistic. On the other hand, the success inevitably will be incremental and will be something that maybe benefits 25% of the population compared to the 12% in a placebo. That's kind of where we are now with some drugs. And it will be, and yeah, if we add this drug in these patients, now it's boosted to 40%. And if we had another drug in other patients that have a genetic risk, now the response rate is 60%. And that's exactly what we saw in hep C. It went from 5% for interferon alone to, I think, 20% with interferon and ribavirin. Then pegylated interferon, it was 45%. And then direct-acting antivirals with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, it was 75%. And then we went to all oral antivirals, and it's 95 plus percent. And that took
3: Five years. can I ask you a question and, and and it's semi-related to the hepatitis C hepatitis C genotype 3 confers fat into the liver do we know what the mechanism is within the virus that triggers that mechanism and is it something that would be something that we could look at in NAFLD as to why there are certain triggers because that was specific to genotype 3 it didn't happen in the other genotypes
2: yeah I'm pretty sure it's known but unfortunately I don't know it maybe urine does but I think the mechanism for why genotype 3 Led to fat was discovered. I don't think, on the other hand, there's any obvious connection beyond what we already know to NASH. On the other hand, the fat in the liver from genotype 3 seem to make things worse. So anytime you have fat in the liver, no matter what else is going on, it's not going to make things better. It's going to make things worse. I don't know. Jor, do you remember? I'm not going to
1: It was something about interaction with transcription factors that promoted hepatic lipogenesis. I believe the important comment here, Scott, is it was felt that it exacerbated fibrosis by adding a cofactor, and the virus needed the lipid particles to replicate. I think is something very specifically to it, but I don't think there's a direct link to it, Louise. Outside that, but it's a cofactor with the metabolic phenotype we're seeing now, and I don't think we can learn from the Hep C field. But it's something we not from the mechanism, but In general, from, of course, how we thought about fibrosis, fibrosis progression, fibrosis regression, this is something we look at and compare ourselves in terms of treatment responses today. And sometimes it's a little unfair because obviously the target's been so much better defined in hep C compared to what we're trying to teach today.
0: Duly noted. Scott, why don't we take a few minutes if you've got one more paper to go through. Let's do that. Sure. And let me wind us back to where
2: Jorn had sort of teed up this paper. And he had made the important observation that one of the variables we may not be thinking about is the stage of disease and how that influences the behavior of cells and the therapeutic targets that are relevant. And that's exactly what a paper actually from my lab, I don't mean to be self-serving, it's actually accepted for publication in Science Translational Medicine. So I think it's past muster from a peer review perspective. And it's among the most exciting things I've done in a long, long time. And it's really work that's been driven by a super talented young faculty, Shuang or Sammy Wang, in my laboratory. To cut a long story short, we used a method to visualize the stellate cells or the fibrogenic cells in liver that has been developed mostly for viewing tissues from the brain and the CNS called glass imaging or uh, transparency imaging. And what you effectively do is you turn uh, any organ that you subject this chemical treatment to into an aversion of the invisible man. Do you remember, I'm not sure, Roger, you're my age, so you may remember, but when we were kids, if you had any interest at all in medicine, your parents or your grandparents bought you the invisible man. It was a small statue of a, of a human. The body was completely clear and you could see inside to the organs. And that's exactly what clearing methods are doing now for different tissues. As I said, it was developed for the brain, but Sammy actually modified the methodologies for the first time to use this to visualize stellate cells in normal, and NASH-affected mouse liver. And she's now trying to extend those techniques to human liver. But basically what she showed is that as NASH develops in a mouse, and we have a very good model we've used for a number of years now called the FAT-NASH model, but you start to see this incredible network of intercalating foot processes that are only developing as the disease advances. This network is so dense, it looks a little bit like you know octopus legs intertwining with one another and allowing much more interaction and communication between stellate cells and what we call an autocrine pathway. And so what we've shown is that actually there's this new variable that is time or stage dependent where you now have a preponderance of autocrine or self-cell, stellate cells, stellate cells interacting with each other. And that actually is driven by different molecular targets than the ones that are driving interactions at the earlier stages of disease. The implication of that may be that it makes sense to choose therapeutic targets, not just based on whether we think they're Antifibrotic, but whether we think they're attacking the pathways that are more relevant in advanced disease, i.e., the autocrine pathways. So it may turn out that we have stage-specific therapies as Nash develops. That's a long ways off in the clinical setting, but it's for me a new and very exciting conceptual framework that we we need to think about because clearly the biggest unmet need of all the unmet needs is patients who have cirrhosis or nearly have cirrhosis, and we really have nothing much to offer them. One other interesting element of this project that I'm excited about is that as we know. No, the features of NASH tend to go away as the disease gets advanced. So the fat starts to go away, a lot of the ballooning becomes less obvious, and then you're left with what's called a bland cirrhosis, so much so that until a few years ago, these were called idiopathic cirrhosis because nobody realized that what they were having or developing was end-stage cirrhosis without the features of NASH, whereas they'd had NASH at earlier stages. Now this model of progressive autocrine signaling and loss of a lot of the other features conforms exactly to a model that was proposed by some very wise investigators at the Weitzman and at Yale University who are now co-authors on our paper, in which they propose that fibrosis goes from what's called hot fibrosis, meaning a lot of inflammatory cells, and ultimately develops into what they called cold fibrosis, which is where you have mostly just the fibrogenic cells and none of the inflammatory cells. And this is a concept that's gotten great traction, and for good reason, in the cancer immunology field, where hot tumors are the ones that are most responsive to anti-inflammatory drugs and checkpoint inhibitors because they have the inflammatory cells that can respond to those treatments. And so by analogy, if this model holds up and I hope and expect that it will, it means that drugs that are attacking inflammation are going to be more effective when there's a lot of inflammatory cells in the tissue and drugs that are attacking advanced liver disease have to focus on the fibrogenic cells because the inflammation isn't quite as important because they have this self-perpetuating autocrine loop. So I hope I explained it clearly but I again, for those who show up at my hashtag talk, uh, you'll get some uh, more explicit demonstrations of what I'm trying to convey.
0: So commercially, obviously, that's amazingly compelling because then you can actually start to target what you're spending your money on at the places where people are going to die and the cost are greatest.
2: Exactly. And, and we do describe one pathway. We show that, interestingly, the pathway that's called neurotrophin signaling or the d- receptor is called NTRK3 and the ligand for that receptor is NTF3. And if we interrupt that pathway in our advanced Fibrotic stages, we see reversal of fibrosis in as little as four weeks. It suggests that there's already drugs available that can target some of those so called autocrine interactions. And again, I would posit that they're going to be more effective than general drugs that are not really targeting what's happening at the late stage of disease the way this one
1: did. Yeah, I think there's a lot of power in this, Scott, and it probably breaks down a little bit more the stages. You know, we're looking very statically at advanced uh, liver disease, F3 on histology, but really what you're saying here and what you're most likely Showing in your paper, you know, just from understanding what, and I wasn't your reviewer, so I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> It's about how much activity is there at what stage. And that can be independent of the fibrosis stage we're getting with our NITs or with the biopsies. So that opens up an exciting new perspective on, let's say, actively fibrosing patients or let's say strongly fibrosing patients versus the ones that maybe have gone part of the way, but will never be so active and we might not have to care about. So I think it adds a level that we can use to characterize patients, if I understand you correctly. Yeah.
2: And I think it speaks to different or more refined staging of disease with respect to how the cells are touching one another and what they look like. So the paper, I'm assuming, will be formally in press soon. But uh, as I said, we're really excited about it because it reframes the whole issue of early, intermediate, and advanced fibrosis and the relevant therapeutic targets for each of those
0: stages. Scott, you've been amazingly generous with your time today. Hoping you'll join us for one of the Nashtag breakfasts. As long as you have coffee, I'll be there. Fantastic. And, and so thank you so much.
1: Please join us again tomorrow for the full conversation between Yarn, Louise, Roger, and their guest, Hannes Hockström here on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast.